Welcome to episode 43, Disaster Mental Health, How to Help in the Aftermath of a Tragedy by Robert Scholes, Licensed Marriage and Family Therapist and Licensed Professional Clinical Counselor and Dr. Susan Hall. From Clearly Clinical, learn, grow, shine. Hi everyone. My name is Robert Scholes, and I want to thank Clearly Clinical for having us do this podcast on disaster mental health and how to help in the aftermath of a tragedy. My name is Robert Scholes, and I am going to be presenting this podcast with Dr. Susan Hall, who will be introducing herself in a moment. But just real quickly, I'll tell you a little bit about me. I am a licensed marriage and family therapist and licensed professional clinical counselor, state of California, also a licensed professional counselor in the state of Arizona. And I've been practicing as a mental health professional for uh, almost 25 years. Um, I've had a number of different roles in the community mental health field, forensic mental health field, um, spent a good bit of time also in university mental health, um, and I've been heavily involved in a number of responses to uh, crisis situations, both individual crisis, community-based crisis, and um, find this topic to be very interesting, especially in light of some recent tragedies that have occurred in uh, the area where I work um, and live. Yes, and being from the same community as Robert, I too have been personally affected by this topic, along with it being one that I specialize in. And my heart goes out to any of you who are listening who have been personally affected by trauma in your life. Hi, everyone. I'm Dr. Susan Hall, and I'm an associate professor of psychology at Pepperdine University's Graduate School of Education in Psychology. In my career, I've published and presented on trauma and positive psychology, as I'm very interested in the ways that people recover and even thrive after adversity. As an attorney and a psychologist, I've had a long-standing interest in psychology policy and law, especially as related to children and their families exposed to maltreatment and intergenerational trauma. Uh, more recently, my research on psychotherapy trainees has focused on incorporating mindfulness and other contemplative practices in their training. And I'm so grateful for my over 15 years at Pepperdine, having the uh, privilege and opportunity to teach and mentor new psychotherapists in learning and honing their craft and watching them grow and be agents of change in their community. Also in relevant to this podcast, I serve as a reviewer for the American Psychological Association's journal, uh, The Psychological Trauma Theory, Research, Practice, and Policy. Finally, I just want to add that I've had the pleasure um, over the years getting to collaborate with Robert on a variety of projects and publications. Um, both professionally and personally. Um, one project would be our son, who's nine. Uh, as full disclosure, Robert and I have been married almost 20 years. Thank you, Susan. And <clears throat> we are excited to be able to bring this podcast to you and share a little bit about our experiences. As, as I mentioned, you know, in my opening, um, this topic of disaster mental health um, has been incredibly relevant to my personal and professional life over the last couple of months. And what we're going to present to you today actually is um, some information that we adapted from an article that we were asked to write uh, for the California Association of Marriage and Family Therapists um, bi-monthly magazine called The Therapist. And so in the November and December issue, um, we wrote an article about, um, you know, when when tragedy strikes a community twice and um, really kind of how to effectively respond to people um, in, in, those, in, in our community. 
um, and in communities that experience similar types of, of crisis situations. And it, it was different. You know, I, I had been working in the field, um, as I mentioned, been a mental health professional for over 20 years and have been really involved in crisis response work for really the last 15 in, in a number of different capacities, you know, both as a, a clinical director working on a university campus, now more um, where I, in addition to doing direct intervention uh, work with people in, in crisis situations, I also consult with uh, universities and other community organizations who are tasked with um, just knowing how to prepare um, and then respond when tragedy hits their campus um, or business. But this was a little bit different um, because on November 8th, um, I, I woke up pretty early and I, I looked uh, at my phone and I had numerous uh, voicemails and text messages that had come in overnight. And then I, as I started to read, um, I, I soon realized that there had been a tragedy in my, in my community. And this was the borderline uh, bar and grill shooting uh, that occurred um, less than 10 minutes from my house. And at that shooting were um, mostly a young adult population, although it, it's a place that attracts people of all ages. It's one of those places that has been around for um, a couple generations. Um, it is that safe place that people go and dance and have a good time. Um, but on that night, it was not safe. And... Um, uh, numerous, more than a dozen people lost their lives that night, including uh, several college students. And so uh, in those messages that I was getting was some responses and calls from a couple of local colleges who I do some consulting with and, and help in their crisis response work with. And, and throughout the day, that day, um, you know, was involved in sort of helping to plan some, you know, response to that tragedy of that shooting um, and both helping those those institutions figure out what would be the most effective way to help them um, respond to a death of a student as well as students who had been, um, you know, in the vicinity of a, of a, of a horrible uh, situation and were having some very strong reactions to their, their memories of that event. So that evening of the 8th, I, I went and I was working that day to um, just be supportive to a colleague and they were running a vigil at a local college because they had lost a student in the shooting. And as I was heading out to that vigil, I noticed uh, that a wildfire had broken out um, not far from the uh, location of the shooting. And um, this was, if you live in Southern California, you know um, very well about uh, the Santa Ana winds. But if you don't, um, this is that time of year in the fall and even early, early early winter where we get very strong winds in our areas at high risk for wildfire. So not uncommon that we would see the fires, but one broke out as I was heading out, um, made it out to the vigil, went to the vigil, and as I was coming back home, noticed that actually another fire breaking out, um, and one that I knew if it continued on its path would would definitely affect my community. And so after I picked up my son from a friend's house who was watching him, we went home and um, we began to sort of uh, try to determine, you know, was it safe for us to stay or not? And so after consulting with, um, with Susan, um, made the decision to, um, evacuate because we could see that the fire was coming very quickly um, 
towards our community. And, um, and having been through these fires before, we know that it's better to get out sooner than later. Um, and so we did. And so, you know, heading off, um, you know, heading away from the community, you know, where now two tragedies are hitting within 24 hours, which is such an odd feeling. Um, and lots of thoughts racing through my mind, you know, on one hand, just being very happy to get away and uh, be able to be in a safe place with my family. Um, on the other hand, feeling like, wow, you know, this is what I do. And it feels kind of odd for me to be leaving uh, when I could be helping. Um, but found myself safe um, a couple hours south of our home. Um, was glad I left because within a few hours, mandatory evacuation orders had come from our house. And so, you know, really it was a, it was a period of time where I was just sitting, um, just trying to be safe, trying to get updates on our home, our neighborhood, was it safe? And really, you know, flanked with uh, actually several other friends who were from our community that were staying in hotels nearby where we were staying. Um, so here we were, you know, in, in, in many ways, we were, we were victims of the fire. Um, and yet, as a professional, just trying to figure out my place in that. And so that's really, you know, you know our, our talk today is, is about, you know, so what do you do um, and, and how, do you, how do you help in this field? Um, and so we're going to talk a little bit about, you know, what, what this disaster mental health field looks like and some important information that might help you as you begin to consider your work in this work. So as Robert was saying, the main purpose of our talk today is to help raise awareness among mental health professionals about this unique field, disaster mental health, uh, its principles, its services, what it's about. Uh, although disaster mental health, and we may use some acronyms here, <laughs> DMH, uh, is typically for non-private practice clients, uh, if you are a practitioner, many of its principles, what's involved, will seem familiar to you. Um, and if that is, then it might help you if you think about putting on your DMH hat, um, if one of your existing clients experience a disaster. Um, that will help kind of differentiate DMH from what you typically do. And our talk today hopefully will help you understand what wearing this DMH hat um, is all about, how to remain calm, supportive, and flexible by attending to your client's immediate stabilization needs rather than continuing with what you already were doing in your treatment plan. So to accomplish our goal for this podcast, we're going to start off with providing you with some basic background on DMH, uh, for suggestions about how mental health professionals can assist in aiding disaster survivors and victims. We'll also discuss how to recognize and reduce the likelihood of vicarious or secondary traumatization, and, uh, and by providing some other resources for additional trainings available for you um, interested in doing disaster mental health. And we'll continue to go back and forth as we go through these different topic areas. Thank you, Susan. So I'm going to start off and just talk really just about what exactly is disaster mental health. And, you know, we, this idea of responding to people um, in disasters, it's nothing new. However, I think there is something that is particularly different over the past decade um, that in, in this era of mass violence, natural disasters, um, it is different. And we, we are seeing more situations where large groups of people have been exposed to traumatic events and, and we're needing to figure out how to respond to them um, in a way um, that is effective um, and that may be quite different than how we typically think about how we work um, with people in a therapy setting. I think 
just having some basic understanding about what disaster mental health is, um, is important. Because what I noticed, too, is that, you know, in, respond, in response to the disasters um, in my community, um, numerous people, you know, there were calls for help and people, people saying we need, we need mental health professionals to help out. Um, and yet, I do think that there were some people who were very aware um, of what would be the helpful thing to do, and yet I think there were others that that wanted to help, but but maybe didn't have the background and training that helped them think through um, the most effective ways they could be available um, to the community. And, and that's not a judgment; it's more just a statement of um, I think those of us in the helping profession always want to help, um, and, and yet a one size fits all to helping. Um, we know it doesn't work when it when it pertains to other types of issues, and and I think we have to think about disaster mental health as a unique subset um, of mental health work that really requires some specific training. So defined by the public health emergency, disaster or behavioral mental health is the delivery of mental health, substance abuse, or stress management services to disaster survivors or responders. Um, disasters do differ from crisis in that a disaster frequently follows a crisis um, or an emergency. Um, and this is really where people are unable to meet their basic survival needs or their serious or immediate threats to life and well-being. Um, life is really kind of suspended for a while. Um, and, you know, really, we're, we're really trying to... Um, avert um, uh, even a, a major disaster after the disaster and what we're and how we're responding um, the unique context of disaster really does shape the location scope and priorities for DMH services uh, it's really different <clears throat> than traditional in-office therapy DMH counseling, disaster mental health counseling, often occurs in the field, um, at a shelter, a community center, or the disaster site itself. You know, when I think of the different places <clears throat> I've done um, a disaster or a, a significant crisis intervention um, response, it sometimes has been in a university um, dorm room. <clears throat> it's been in a cafeteria. It has been in a, a shelter. Susan and I were two of the professionals who were tasked with um, preparing a group of students who were going to New Orleans following Hurricane Katrina and really just trying to help them get a sense of what they were walking into. This was not an ordinary situation where they were going to walk into um, you know, a, a church or a community center, um, you know, where people were, were, were safe and were, were feeling, um, feeling like things could return to normal. They were, they were going into a disaster zone where people had lost everything. Um, and where, where even those helping had been deeply, deeply impacted. And so really trying to help them get a sense of what would be most helpful. Um, <clears throat> we're going to talk about this framework um, of priorities in uh, disaster mental health. And one of the first priorities is um, is the, the word protection. And that we're, one of our goals in DMH service is to protect people from danger and the trauma um, while they're in a shelter or a safe place. Um, the second one is to direct people um, to and help them with their immediate priorities of food, water, medical needs, um, and to restore some sense of hope um, and meaning in that moment. Um, finally, the third priority we think a lot about is that of connection and really trying to help just connect people 
to friends and family for support. Um, these really are these are the these are the priorities that are outlined um, often and throughout the disaster mental health literature, um, as well as the psychological first aid literature, as the primary goals and tasks of things we're trying to we're doing with people. And so, when providing these services, um, you're oftentimes in a room with people from multi, multiple different organizations, the Red Cross, people from faith-based organizations, um, medical providers, emergency personnel, um, school mental health providers. So it, when you walk into a disaster mental health situation, you are typically one of many who's in the room. And, and I think that sometimes is a little bit overwhelming for a, a mental health provider because you're trying to figure out what's my place here. But I think, again, if you think back to your priorities that, that I mentioned a, a moment ago, the, the whole issue of protecting, directing, and connecting <clears throat> are good places to start and think about your work. Um, we know that you know referrals for traditional psychotherapy sometimes emerge from the short-term community-based work, but it really is not our intent or goal. Um, our, our goal is to really help people in the moment um, while they're still oftentimes um, coming off of or still in the middle of uh, a pretty tragic situation. Susan's going to jump in here and talk a little bit about some ways um, that you can prepare for providing uh, DMH counseling services. Thanks, Robert. Okay, helpful tips for responding to or with disaster survivors. Well, in order to effectively, professionally intervene with a survivor or a group of disaster survivors, uh, we think one valuable step to prepare is to consider you, uh, your personal biases and expectations about disasters and trauma and the people who are experiencing them. We invite you to check your current understandings against these facts about survivors. All right, so important facts or truths about disaster survivors. PTSD. Will most people who have a uh, experience a disaster develop PTSD? No, most do not. Although most individuals will experience one or more potentially traumatic events or PTEs over their lifetimes, survivors of these events, including disasters, including the ones that Robert and I talked about at the beginning, have a range of short and long-term reactions. If you said, you know, yes, that they do, don't worry, because um, that's really what was generally thought of in the past. And most MFPs, mental health professionals, and the general public generally believed, used to believe that most um, disaster-affected individuals developed serious psychological reactions, and including PTSD. Um, but that is not true, although no one is untouched by experiencing a disaster, most people who do are quite resilient and do not develop PTSD. Um, and there's many sites that go with this, the Centers of Disease Control and Prevention, um, back in 2005, uh, talked about this. Second, so you've experienced something, can you bounce back? Yes, you can. And many people bounce back quickly. In the aftermath of a disaster or a mass traumatic event, survivors and witnesses, they, we, experience a range of reactions. They do intensify the closer you are to the actual disaster site. Um, and, you know, the media, uh, media outlets often do catastrophize the um, state of survivors or play up those who seem to be the most affected. Um, but most people are resilient and bounce back quickly. And in fact, in a lot of the research that uh, I've been doing and with my students, uh, that some people 
who have experienced traumatic events can come out of it stronger as a result of their struggle than before and may experience something called post-traumatic growth as a result of their struggle with the trauma. All right, third important fact or truth. Uh, so because we are so good at being able to bounce back, does that mean we are superhuman? Uh, no, but we wish that we were. Um, and on the other hand, we're not, you know, helpless. Uh, we are regular people uh, that cope actively, uh, that in our own unique ways attempt to face uh, the challenges that we encounter with uh, integrity. And while many survivors may go through a period of struggling with uh, those things that we should be doing with uh, school or work, uh, family, other important areas of our lives, um, and appear un unfazed by traumatic events, uh, most will move back toward uh, what's called baseline, your pre-disaster level of functioning within a relatively short period of time. So there is hope. Next, uh, Robert will talk with you about the stages of a disaster and some helpful responses uh, that you can help to provide people with. So one of the first steps in figuring out where you as a mental health professional can be useful in a disaster response situation is to, first of all, just figure out where you are within sort of the stage of the disaster. And some of you might be saying, well, I, what are the different stages? Well, that's what I'm going to talk about next. And I'm going to review with you what's referred to as a disaster recovery and impact model uh, that I found on the American Counseling Association's Traumatology Interest Network um, several years ago. And, and this model, and there's other models out there, but this one really helped to ground me in helping me to understand and assess where people are at and what I should be focusing on whether it's with my clients in private practice um, or if I'm actually being called into a situation. Um, it's one of the first questions I sort of ask myself is, okay, where, where, what stage are we at in, in this disaster response situation? I might add also that in this last uh, series of uh, these last two disasters that struck in my community, uh, just talking with people and providing some psychoeducation uh, to people, both that were affected by the disaster or those that were trying to be support people for those, talking with them about this model really was helpful to them. Um, it, it helped to kind of normalize their own experience and process. So, um, and, and I also want you to think about this and imagine, too, I'm going to keep going back to the, the whole thing about the protect, direct, and support. And so what are your roles and where, do you, where do you, what are you doing in terms of those three identifiable tasks? So the first phase in this model, the stage model, is the pre-contemplation phase. And, you know, not all disasters, I might add, have this phase. So some disasters... Uh, I think, for example, the shooting was an example where the, there was no pre-contemplation phase. But situations like hurricanes, tsunamis, um, tornadoes to some extent, um, you do have some sort of like an early warning system. And so there is some buildup and preparations can be made, um, but also can be very anxiety provoking and and these are situations where um, you as a counselor one of the main things you can do is to sort of help people prepare and think about a plan on what they would do and how to manage themselves ahead of time um, and really taking the advice of the authorities we this is one I, I think we'll continue to reflect on in, in light of this most recent crisis but um, I think 
uh, people get a lot of mixed information about do we stay or do we go in the midst of a wildfire, um, <clears throat> you know, and and so while there were some stories of um, people staying and saving homes, other people uh, put themselves in significant harm's way. But but really trying to help people think through their decision making um, sometimes can be helpful in that pre-contemplation phase. The second phase we refer to as the impact phase. And this is really, you know, where individuals, they're, they're in it. And so this might be a situation um, where the fire is happening, they've been evacuated, they're not sure whether their home has been lost or not, they're in a shelter, they're at a friend's house, they're at a community center. Um, and it can be a really disorienting um, experience. I, I can I can even really relate to it in this most recent situation where um, when I was staying a couple hours away from our home um, and we were getting these updates, you know, via Twitter and some other social media apps about where the fire was spreading very, you know, somewhat close to my home. And just how anxious I was, I couldn't sleep, I wasn't thinking clearly. Um, for other people, it's just they don't want to think about it at all. And so, you know, you're seeing, you know, people in a really, you know, significant stage of denial. Um, there are also those other people during impact phase where they are, um, they're saving their houses. They are... Um, uh, putting, you know, doing heroic things and at the same time putting themselves at major risk. Um, you know, I think for some people during that impact phase, um, you know, and we'll talk about some of the specific interventions, but it's really helping to calm um, and, and just helping people get to safety. And um, sometimes the best thing that we can give them is some water and, um just helping them kind of know that people are around there to help them. The next phase is referred to as the assessment phase, and that's sort of the post-impact, um, where people begin to assess the damages, and they you know, are starting to seek out information on how to help themselves. Um, this can be frustrating, I think, sometimes for survivors of a disaster, because the information gathering can be slow. Um, I find that, you know, and I think we saw this in one of our um, local communities in Malibu where they were really cut off, too, physically from um, getting getting food, getting help, getting information. Um, and that could be very, very frustrating for people. Um, so... Um, I think, again, kind of helping people and figure out, you know, what do they need during that assessment phase, um, help, maybe helping them get information, um, helping, you know, get good lines of communication going is helpful. The fourth phase is we see this community cohesion phase. Uh, I think we saw this quite a bit is where, you know, as after the impact happens, that we see people come together in a way that is pretty incredible. We saw this a lot with the fires recently. You see this in other situations where people rise to the occasion, they come together. There's this real bond that occurs around the event or series of event. You see hope grow. Um, you see amazing acts of, of giving and service and support for the victims of the disaster. But like many other news headlines, um, as the days go on, um, in many ways the the page turns, and uh, it, it no longer is maybe the main priority. The firefighters leave in this in our most recent situation. The police leave around the borderline shooting event, um, and, and then people are kind of enter the next phase, which is called the dissolution phase. Um, and it's where sometimes people get really disenchanted. 
um, and, and frustrated with the recovery process because it's slow. I, I met many people who really just felt like, um, you know, even though there was this bonding, there's this, in uh, that week or so after, um, they just really started to feel pretty um, isolated, forgotten. Um, DMH counselors can really provide validation of the pain and loss balanced with problem solving. Um, for other survivors, this phase sometimes spent looking for greater meaning in the events. Um, but oftentimes we see mood drop. Um, we see people get more depressed and sad and angry. Um, it also, it, and so it's it's a time of, it can lead to isolation. It also can be an opportunity for people to connect. Um, but you'll hear sometimes people also, as they're kind of going through this phase, um, that sometimes meaning grows. So it, it's... I think of I think of it the way I describe it best is it's a zigzag. It's they're they're zigging and zagging back and forth between feeling um, the loss and the pain and the frustration, kind of the grief, um, with the other side of it, of of feeling like opportunities for growth and really reevaluating life. Um, and yet there's this constant, it's like a ping pong ball. And people will go in and out of those two, um, two different types of feeling and um, thinking, you know, even in, in, in the course. And so kind of as a, as a DMH responder, it's being aware of that. <clears throat> and, and I think really allowing that to happen, um, that that's really, when we think about, we take a step back and we think of grief, that's a normal part of the grief recovery process is sort of giving yourself time to be in the grieving, also some time to be back in your life, back in some recovery-oriented activities, um, <clears throat> and allowing people to kind of be where they are. Um, later on, we see people kind of going into, you know, the anniversary phase. Um, periods sometimes are marked by rumination, remembering, distancing, you know, as holidays come by, you know, I think birthdays, holidays, anniversaries of the events, sometimes those things can trigger a lot of feelings. It's also an opportunity to remember. Um, so, you know, in our most recent two tragedies, you know, I think the most re the recent holidays, it'll be interesting to see how that helped or was a challenge. Um, you know, we know sometimes that um, as people um, hit key events and those losses stand out more, um, where that person that they've lost isn't, you know, at the at the, you know, Hanukkah celebration or the Christmas dinner, um, it, it's sometimes you know where more grief work comes into play, um, and helping them kind of deal with the reality of this. Uh, of the aftermath of a disaster, especially when life has been lost. And then finally, the final phase is sort of this integration or disintegration phase that really can last for years. And I think it really depends on the level of impact. It depends on the level of functioning of the person before they, uh, the tragedy happened. Um, you know, some fall into a place of hopelessness and resignation um, this is where we, you know, even though the symptoms could come in sooner, you know, PTSD, where it's clearly emerging and it's kind of taken a hold. Um, um, and yet we also see others who really kind of have turned it into something that has changed their life. And it's become an integrated part of their, their living and their life experience and they've learned and they're sharing um, so, again, I think the main thing I, in, in talking about this section is that everyone sort of experiences it different. These phases, though, are helpful for you and you thinking about, you know, where is this person I'm talking to at in the process and what would be most useful and helpful to them. 
So now that we've talked about the preparatory step of considering your own personal biases and expectations, um, Robert's discussed the stages of disaster and helpful responses. Um, The third consideration that we want to share is uh, to keep in mind the scope of this type of work. Because DMH counseling and the PFA model view people's reactions and responses to crises and disasters as adaptive rather than psychological, pathological, thinking that everybody's going to have a difficult time with things, your disaster mental health clients are seen as benefiting more from gaining coping skills and self-help strategies than moving toward what we may instinctually do as therapists of going into an immediate course of traditional therapy. So keeping that in mind, as a disaster mental health counselor, putting that hat on, we want to focus on establishing that caring personal connection and offering support and resources rather than figuring out a way to kind of insinuate or get people, steer people toward that they need therapy. When we look at what experts in this DMH field uh, say, they warn against when we're putting on our DMH hat, asking too many questions or using methods that could overly intensify emotional reactions. Instead, we are reminded to think about what most survivors need at this particular period in time, and that is you being what you do well, I am sure, being a sturdy, caring person to sit and be present and care for these survivors in their present distress and not be a counselor, a therapist who's trying to do too much or go into their past. So the primary goal of this initial DMH-PFA interaction with people is to help survivors cope with normal reactions to an abnormal event. Remember, we're seeing them as adaptive, cope with normal reactions to what is an abnormal event. Effective DMH responses are directed by five empirically informed factors. First, safety. Two, calming. Three, believing in their self-efficacy and their collective efficacy of them in their community. Four, connectedness. And five, hope. Mental health professionals are well-trained in being able to provide clients with these five factors. And I am confident in you being able to use these skills as you protect and direct and support people in this DMH counseling with this hat on your head. To really do our work effectively, I cannot emphasize enough the importance of counselors assessing and appreciating the immediate needs of their clients. Although attending to issues like housing, food, financial assistance may not feel like therapy to you, please remind yourself that that is what your clients need in a disaster mental health situation. Um, To that end, a valuable resource that has guided many disaster mental health psychological first aid work is called the Psychological First Aid Field Operations Guide. Um, And I can't really emphasize it enough. It's a great, it's available through the National Child Traumatic Stress Network and the National Center for PTSD. In the guide, they list eight goals and matching interventions um, that are provided to guide disaster mental health counseling responses. And it's really beyond the scope of this podcast to get into each of the those eight. But I do want to talk about uh, a couple of them um, in a little more detail. And before I go into that, one of the things I do recommend 
when you're sitting down with someone who is in need of your help, or, or you're just sitting down having a conversation with them in a disaster mental health situation, is is even just putting these different goals um, in front of them and saying, you know what, there's a lot of things we can spend our time doing. I want to be as helpful to you as possible. Um, you know, but, you know, as we, as we kind of look at these things, um, you know, where do you think we should start? What is going to be most helpful for you in this moment? And so really kind of empower them to guide the conversation, to guide the intervention at that point. So I'm going to focus on what's referred to as goal three, which is called stabilization. Um, survivors often need immediate psychological tools to de-escalate the distressing thoughts, images, and feelings, which can bring them back to their baseline and helps them bring them back to their baseline level of functioning. Um, we know that emotional and somatic reaction to trauma can increase distress and dysregulation. Therefore, one of our main goals in these these briefer interactions, these initial interactions, is helping people reduce and manage the dysregulation. It's really central to our work that we provide them tools. Counselors with experience incorporating mindfulness techniques, using third-wave therapies such as DBT, ACT, MCBT in their practices, and we'd be very familiar with some of the grounding approaches. Um, <clears throat> you know, some of the resourcing approach, approaches used in EMDR interventions, um, we refer to these as grounding approaches. Um, and we really do encourage a reminded to follow trauma-sensitive um, guidelines, whether you're doing mindfulness or other interventions. Um, Focus the tension and concentration task, especially when anchored or centered on external objects, can be a very helpful starting place for trauma survivors. Um, a grounding exercise might sound something like this, the counselor stating, you know, after a scary experience, sometimes people find themselves overwhelmed with emotions or having difficulties with their thinking around what happened. Grounding exercises can help some people feel less anxious or overwhelmed. This process works by teaching you the, to turn your attention from your thoughts back to the outside world. If you'd like to give it a try, here's what we could do. And then you go in and you kind of walk them through the steps, starting with, you know, sit in a comfortable position with your legs and arms uncrossed if possible. Breathe in and out slowly. Look around you and name five non-distressing objects that you can see. For example, you could say, I see the floor, I see a table, I see a chair. Breathe in and out slowly. Next, name five non-distressing sounds that you can hear. For example, I hear a man laughing, I hear the television next door, I hear the door close. Breathe in and out slowly. Now, obviously, I'm going through this much quicker than we would do with a client, but hopefully you get the point that our goal is to kind of bring them back to the here and now and help by using multiple senses to help them reconnect, help them gain some sense of control um, over their body and, and how they're feeling. The last section I want to talk with you, the last goal I want to talk with you about is the goal, which they refer to as goal seven, which is coping. And these are really meant to be activities that promote long-term emotional stabilization. I find that one of the most important parts of this is just starting with some basic psychoeducation. And... That involves normalizing the range of reactions that people experience during and after similar traumatic events and disasters, as well as ways of coping and surviving and thriving. And so one of the things I may start off when we're focusing on this goal is I just may ask them what they know 
about what a normal reaction to this kind of tragedy might be. Um, you know, what's, what, what's interesting is that oftentimes people, even before they reach us, um, they will have done some research about what they might and what they should expect or should be experiencing. So they may already know some things, but um, normalizing the response process is, is really helpful. So many times when I'm out in the field and I'm <clears throat> doing, whether it's an individual um, you know, sort of response or some psychological first aid, or I may even be doing um, as part of a um, critical incident stress debriefing, um, one of the last stages that we, uh, we do in that kind of a bigger intervention is we provide some time to talk about coping. Um, so the psychoeducation is really important. I like to work from um, a strength-based approach uh, that really allows clients to draw on resources that they already have experience and success with. And ultimately, they'll be more likely to use in the future. So, you know, examples of tools. Um, I, I think when I head into these situations, I usually have a few handouts uh, that, you know, I will, if I have time, I will tailor them to the situation. Um, many times I will, I will pull some of the resources that our professional organizations have created. Uh, the American Counseling Association has some great resources. Uh, American Psychological Association has some great resources um, of, of what helps in response to a shooting, in response to a fire, um, and what doesn't help. You know, I often brainstorm with clients about the times in their life where they felt the best and what they were doing to create that feeling. I ask them about other difficult times in their life and what they found helped them get through a difficult time. I think a key part to this, too, is helping people set realistic goals and helping them choose helpful and realistic strategies for reaching and incorporating the new behaviors into their lives. So, for example, um, while we know exercise can be very helpful for people, um, you know, who are dealing with, you know, a lot of anxiety, a lot of irritability, um, really setting that up as something, a, a goal for someone who's never hit the gym or um, never goes out for a walk probably wouldn't be the best solution or best goal to set. So in sum, I encourage you to, to look at those different goal areas, look at those resources that I mentioned earlier. Um, and then although these are short-term interventions, disaster mental health counseling can really set the course for survivors' long-term psychological recovery. We know that early intervention helps. We know that the sooner people can get self-regulated, it decreases their risk for longer-term struggles. At the same time, um, the protect, direct, and support um, may be needed for you, the disaster mental health provider. And so Susan's going to talk a little bit about your own self-care in the midst of a disaster. Although the work that we do as mental health professionals in disaster situations often positively impacts survivors, the truth is that the cost to us be quite high. Vicarious or secondary trauma, also known as compassion fatigue, goes by a lot of different names, but it's been defined as the emotional residue of exposure that counselors have from working with people as they are hearing their trauma stories and become witnesses to the pain, fear, and terror, end quote, that they endured. That's from the ACA fact sheet on vicarious traumatization from 2011. When we bear witness to one or more challenging clinical, personal, tragic encounters, it can lead to significant upset in the life of the counselor, both professionally and personally. As a brief review of some of the symptoms of compassion fatigue, 
uh, they can mirror what we know as burnout, but go beyond it. And they can manifest in different ways, emotionally, physically, behaviorally. So just um, three different sets of key indicators. Uh, first, being in a constant arousal state. Uh, we have upset sleep, inability to focus, concentrate, heightened anxiety. Second, becoming numb to the content discussed by those that we are helping. And third, um, isolating losses, whether getting down on ourselves or on self-worth, difficulties with regulating our emotions, and uh, losing some hope and meaning in what we do. We review these symptoms with you because we've really not only studied them, but we've experienced them personally. Um, I can say that after uh, the Route 91 Las Vegas shootings, um, I led an eight-week support group for concert survivors where on a weekly basis I was meeting with um, groups of um, upwards of 40 individuals each week. Um, while one of the most rewarding experiences in my career, it was also probably one of the most challenging ones. And it was the one that I found most impactful um, to me um, after the groups, where I would have difficulty sleeping at night. I'd find myself crying after some of the initial group discussions where graphic disclosures of gun violence occurred. Through helpful support, and I needed a lot of it, I was able to grow and work through the challenging experience, yet it humbled me that high levels of experience and training in the subject matter did not guarantee that I, or you, will be psychologically safe with difficult client encounters around disaster mental health situations. I learned I really needed to create more intentional space to debrief the experiences and to build in a lot more self-care uh, during my week when doing this work. I can add just in the, the re, with the recent experience, helping those involved in the shooting and the fire is the same as the case. Um, and found that uh, the, these past few weeks have been a time of uh, lots of self-care um, to help ward off some of the effects of the work I've been doing. I strongly encourage those of you that are interested in disaster mental health work to go get more training. Um, if you're interested in furthering your skills in this practice area, invest in it. Note that for large-scale crisis efforts, many jurisdictions <clears throat> require you to have achieved some higher-level training. Um, some of the ones I really recommend, the Red Cross training, Red Cross Disaster Mental Health Training. Um, you can find that at www.redcross.org. Uh, SAMHSA also has some training. FEMA has l training on their website. Um, <clears throat> the group that I did my training with was the International Critical Incident Stress Foundation, ICIFS.org. And there's a great <clears throat> interesting app out there called the Psychological First Aid Field Operations Guide. And if you just Google that in the Play Store, you'll find that app um, for your iPhone and Android smartphones. In conclusion, um, as a mental health professional um, and being part of disaster mental health responses, it's just, it's been an incredible part of my career. And while there's a lot more we could say about the field, um, we could talk more about critical incident debriefing and other trauma-based assessments and treatments um, for diverse survivors and responders. Hopefully this podcast gave you a little bit of an overview of the field of disaster mental health and a window into the work with clients who have been impacted by disasters. I have no doubt, given the tragedies that have affected our country over the last couple of years, that we're going to continue to see this field develop and grow. And so professionals would be wise to continue to stay abreast of the changing um, developments in the field. Thank you so much for listening. You've just finished listening to another exclusive continuing ed podcast by Clearly Clinical. 
If you like what you just heard and you need continuing ed credits, please visit us at clearlyclinical.com to check out our one-year membership, where you'll have access to our growing library of continuing ed podcast courses. Clearly Clinical, where our goal is to help you learn, grow, and shine.